Conference Championship Sunday is on its way. Here to set the stage, handicapper and good friend of the show, Cleve TA, hopping back on Props and Hops. You can find TA's work at cleveanalytics.com and also on the Forward Progress YouTube channel. And on the platform formerly known as Twitter, you can follow him at Cleve TA. That's C-L-E-V-T-A. And he's fresh off a guest starring role on another show this week's episode of Gil Alexander's Beating the Book podcast. So we'll see if we can add to that conversation with two dynamite matchups to preview in this discussion. T.A., welcome back to Props and Hops. Thanks, Matt. I appreciate it. Uh, excited to, to break down these games and a little sad that the season's coming to an end. Uh, uh, it's been a long season, but I, I enjoy every week of the NFL season. So it's a, it's a little sad. Yeah, definitely a little sadness with the season winding down, but on the other end of the spectrum, very happy to have anybody who's with us live on YouTube and Twitter. Want to give the live audience a shout out. Feel free to jump in with any questions or comments, and we'll work that into the show where possible. NTA, we're about to dive into these two big games this weekend, but first off, want to note that your last appearance on this show came in week two. By the way, you nailed Seahawks-Lions being destined for overtime and the Bills steamrolling the Raiders. Big picture here, how would you say your betting approach has evolved over the course of the past four months since that week two conversation? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it, I, I'm always trying to add uh, as many as many data points as possible. And, you know, I've got a couple analysts that work for me part time that do a good job of uh, they're a lot smarter with the coding and uh, the the uh, getting the getting the data uh, better than I am. And they can get it pretty quickly. So, you know, uh, whenever I need kind of I, I break down some of these matchups and, and there are certain uh, areas or stats that I want to really break down further. They do a good job of getting that for me. So just the availability of, of all the data, uh, even things like, you know, uh, really drilling down on coverage data, schemes uh, on defense, how certain quarterbacks perform versus those schemes, you know, different, uh, how, the, how the different um, target uh, targets get, get dis dispersed amongst the different receivers and running backs based on scheme, all those sorts of things, I think, uh, have really helped me continue to evolve uh, my kind of matchup handicapping. So uh, that's probably the biggest, I guess, the, the biggest, you know, way I've evolved is just continuing to add more data, more information. And then I just think, you know, I'm starting to notice the last couple of years, I've, I've talked to uh, guys like Suma and others that you've had on the show before uh, about how, um, just early, my early week action, I think is starting to dwindle a little bit more and more just because there's, there's a lot of injuries that are popping up kind of out of nowhere mid midweek. Uh, we started to see just, you know, out of nowhere, just guys that were not hurt during the game. A couple days later when practice starts, they're, they're questionable. They're not practicing and they end up not playing. And it's like, wow. So there's a lot of information that is being gathered later in the week. So, you know, I think I, I typically, you know, probably grab one or two, uh, early lines that, that obviously around key numbers. Uh, but, you know, I think I'm doing less and less early in the week and more kind of midweek, as long as, you know, I get the first practice report to make sure that everything, you know, is kind of kosher from a, from an injury perspective. So, you know, that's evolved a little bit. I've kind of pushed back some of my uh, early week action to kind of more midweek uh, where I'm, uh, most of my plays uh, occur. So uh, those are probably a couple of things that uh, I think this season I've evolved a little bit more. Well, maybe we can use it to our advantage as we are connecting for a midweek conversation approaching Conference Championship Sunday. Let's kick it off, T.A., with the AFC title game, Kansas City at Baltimore. Ravens currently the favorite, anywhere from three and a half points with extra VIG to a flat four-point favorite at minus 110. Total in this one, 44 and a half. 
and the Chiefs off another thrilling divisional round playoff win over the Bills, another masterpiece by Patrick Mahomes. Baltimore a bit sluggish early on last week off their bye during the wildcard round. Of course, they pulled away from Houston throughout the second half. How would you say, T.A., that you're approaching the AFC Championship game from a betting perspective? Yeah, so I've not done anything from the signer or total as of yet. Uh, I think the number is – I don't even know if I could say it's right because I don't think there is a right number. And, you know, hear me out. Like, I think if you put a blindfold on these teams and you just kind of laid out their day, their season-long data, you probably get to more like a Ravens minus six or even higher just based on how these teams are performed. But when you spend, when you kind of un, unblind, uh, you know who the quarterback is and Patrick Mahomes and obviously the, the coach and Andy Reid and Steve Spagnuolo on defense, you kind of have to pay a premium, and, and it's just hard to uh, discount what you know, who Mahomes is and kind of uh, your priors on him and the fact that he is playing so well uh, right now in the postseason. Two of his better, two of his top five EPA games have come in the last two weeks all season. And so you kind of have to sit back and, and I'm, you know, trying to, I'm wrestling with, do I go along with my kind of season long numbers and just a pure, you know, what, what does this look like from a model perspective, absent who the players are, or do I have, you know, how much do I count for the fact that it's Mahomes and there's a, there's a chance that he's just one of those guys that you can never, you can never fade as an underdog. I mean, I had them last week as an underdog and I thought it was just a better matchup for them, obviously with the injuries to, Buffalo's linebacking core and secondary uh, and, and the rest advantage, you know, all those things kind of played into to KC being a really good spot here. But for, for you know, against Baltimore, it's a little different animal. Uh, they're fully healthy. They're getting Mark Andrews back, potentially uh, getting you know, Marlon Humphrey back. So it's a really tough, tough kind of, um, you know, handicap here between your actual numbers and, you know, you know, once you're figuring out who you're, you're, you're fading. And so to me, I, I haven't made a decision yet. I, I kind of lean under, but again, yeah, I leaned under last week, but when you have two great quarterbacks going, it's really tough to to uh, go under, you know, a pretty moderate you know number in 44 and a half where, where we sit now. So it, it, I haven't pulled the trigger or anything. I said the one, you know, I'll give out one uh, bet I have made. It's a prop that I think you could still get at the, the current number, 25 and a half over Patrick Mahomes rush yards. And so, you know, we, we've seen it time and time again with uh, Josh Allen, especially, but Mahomes really ratchets it up his, uh, rushing when it comes to high leverage spots, obviously the playoffs are that his uh, regular season career yards per game jumps from 20, uh, from 20 up to 27 in the postseason. Again, smaller sample, but you know, if you watch, you watch uh, KC and Mahomes in the playoffs, it, you know, he is running a lot more and it makes sense. You know, your, your risk of uh, you care less about uh, getting hurt uh, in the playoffs versus regular season. There's high leverage moments um, where you have to get that, you know, uh, he's going to make that play. All those sorts of things play into it. And obviously this is the fact that the, the number is 25 and a half. His season average is 24, by the way. So it's a little bit higher than this, than the, the regular season, um, you know, accounts for some of that. But I think with this aggressive Ravens defense, the fact that they play a lot of man-to-man, um, -man, it's one of the higher rates in the NFL. They mix their coverages up a lot. Uh, but the fact that they play a lot of man-to-man, -man, that always lends itself to more running lanes for the quarterback. The, you know, their backs are turned. Uh, to the quarterback on defense, and, and it gives a better chance for a guy like Mahomes to, uh, to to get to create some yards. And he's played a couple other defenses that play man to man at a high rate, in the Dolphins and the Chargers. Um, and in those games, he played three games against those teams. He ran for 41, 29, and 24 yards. You know, we saw against Miami two weeks ago, he ran for 41 yards uh, in that playoff game. 
The Ravens have not faced many good scrambling quarterbacks all year. It's actually interesting. Uh, Justin Herbert and Trevor Lawrence, who are, you know, they're mobile, but I wouldn't necessarily call them, you know, the greatest runners in the world, uh, are the only two quarterbacks among the top 20 in uh, rushing yards that that they faced all year. And both of those guys ran for over 40 yards and scrambles. So, you know, they haven't really been tested in that regard. So I think there's an opportunity here for Mahomes. And I, I would, you know, I think of all the scenarios, Casey winning in a blowout is, is obviously the, you know, the least probable. So, uh, you know, they're likely to be in, in a close game situation or, you know, even trailing where he's going to have to drop back a little bit more and, and make some of those plays through, uh, you know, from his legs. So uh, I do think there's value here at anything kind of under uh, 28, 29 yards, I, I think is worth a play. So uh, I think that's one prop. And that's the only thing I've taken in this game so far. And I'm glad you mentioned at the end there a price cutoff. It sounds like if we're going to need 28 or 29 yards to cash this, perhaps that's where you draw the line. I am seeing a flat 25 and a half at a pretty prominent regulated U.S. book, but the consensus definitely seems to be more in that range of 26 and a half. Don't want it to seem like we're splitting hairs here, but what would you define as a price cutoff point from a home's rushing yards over? Yeah. Yeah, my number 28 and a half would be the number that I would kind of max it out at. I think anything under there is is just fine. All right. Sounds good. I have a similar bet and a few leans I'd like to run by you shortly here, but kind of to mirror your perspective of also looking at this from a full game perspective, looking at the point spread, even if we don't see a lot of value on one side or the other right now. Full transparency, I was pretty eager to bet the Chiefs at a flat plus three and a half when this line opened, and I felt pretty good about myself when the line initially dropped to three. But of course, since then, there has been some strong market resistance on Baltimore, and that has me feeling some buyer's remorse. As I try to look at this on both sides of the coin here, some pros for Baltimore. Situationally, the Chiefs at a rest disadvantage. This is also a back-to-back -back road setting for Kansas City. Their defense was on the field for 78 plays and more than 37 minutes of game time last week in Buffalo. And that could be magnified by some injuries they suffered, especially defensively. Safety Mike Edwards concussed on the opening drive. Didn't practice today, but that's pretty expected as he works through concussion protocol, even though protocol has been largely fast-tracked down the home stretch this season. Edwards may well play, but no surprise he didn't practice today. One guy who practiced, and that was pretty noteworthy, linebacker Willie Gay. He missed most of the Bills game with a neck injury, and he was limited today. That's a good sign. He's probably going to suit up on Sunday, even if he might not be likely to be at 100%. And these injuries to the Kansas City back seven, not just a potential problem against the pass. Gay is used as their spy against mobile quarterbacks like Josh Allen and Lamar Jackson, mm -hmm. of course, this week. And on the other side of the ball, all-Pro guard Joe Tooney likely going to miss this game. So that could loom large for the Kansas City front. Although if that leads to more pressure, we've seen in the past what Mahomes can do with his legs. So maybe that works out well for your prop. Yeah. From a game management perspective, Kansas City in the fourth quarter at Buffalo, I saw all kinds of red flags with what Andy Reid was doing. The Chiefs scored a touchdown to go up 26-24. Buffalo had a penalty that could have given the Chiefs a two-point conversion attempt from the one-yard line. Reid elected to take the extra point. And I feel like he was kind of bailed out by Buffalo missing that field goal late that would have tied the game. Justin Tucker is almost automatic for Baltimore if this hinges on a late field goal attempt. And one thing I haven't heard elsewhere, but that really stood out to me, Reed seemed to waste a timeout after a lengthy discussion among the officials that led to a pretty easily anticipated pass interference call against Buffalo. I don't know what the excuse was for Kansas City not being ready to get that next playoff. So some things for Baltimore from a situation, injury, or game management standpoint that could bode well for the Ravens. 
for the Chiefs, I think that this game didn't need to come down to a field goal late that could have tied the game. Kansas City dominated Buffalo from my perspective, much more than that 27-24 final score indicates. The Bills, the beneficiaries of quite a bit of fumble luck in this one, starting with Stephon Diggs fumbling on the very first play of the game, and I believe it was Dalton Kincaid batting the ball out of bounds, well worth the penalty to maintain possession there for Buffalo. And two examples in the fourth quarter, Nicole Hardman's fumble, that's been well-documented, going through the end zone, likely a seven-point swing. And then Josh Allen fumbling, I believe, on the Bills' ensuing drive, the Chiefs appeared to go for a scoop and score instead of falling on the ball. The next play, the Bills convert a fourth down. I don't think fumbles are likely to work as strongly against Kansas City this week. When we get to something that's more predictive, I look at the Chiefs going plus three yards per play. That's a monster edge, especially when we consider that that includes four kneel downs for negative six yards. This is just a major edge in terms of something that's a more predictive measure of down-to-down performance as we look ahead to the AFC title game. Something else that stood out to me here, high leverage downs. Buffalo went nine for 17 on third and fourth down, a success rate north of 50%. Kansas City just one for four on third down, and that's excluding the final play of the game, which was a kneel down on third down. Still just a 25% success rate for Kansas City. I think the bigger takeaway here, early downs tend to be much more predictive, and Kansas City had a significant edge, as the yards per play numbers will tell us. And the fact that the Chiefs were only forced into four third down snaps, I think that's a massive statement about the current form of Mahomes and this offense. That early down success rate could bode very well for Kansas City moving forward. And lastly, CA, Houston had six penalties in the first quarter last week in Baltimore. I think that was a huge factor keeping this game tighter than it needed to be early on. The Texans could have been leading at the half, if not for those penalties and a missed field goal. I think those kinds of things unlikely to repeat in Baltimore's favor this week. So all in all, that's a lot of context that I'm trying to keep in mind as I evaluate a lot of the different dynamics and play here. TA, one question to bring it back over to you. My biggest takeaway from our week two conversation was that I think it was looking at that Seattle-Detroit game. The Seahawks had some big offensive line injuries in the middle of their week one game, and that led to a pretty surprising loss to the Rams, if I'm recalling this correctly. And you had a pretty salient point that adjusting to offensive line injuries in-game, much more difficult than game planning around those types of injuries when you have all week to prepare. And how does that dynamic affect your point of view on Kansas City's offense this week, given Tooney's status? Yeah, I mean... It did. Uh, Mahomes is so good at avoiding sacks. Like he's the best, one of the best we've ever seen at doing so. So even with a, you know, uh, an injury, it's a big injury because Tooney's really good and his backup is not. Um, but the good news is that it's not like the Ravens up the middle are um, are dominant. I mean, they're a good pass rush, but they're not great. It's more about, you know, scheming pressures up uh, by Mike McDonald. And that's where you're going to get the issues is, is any sort of communication when you bring extra men uh, up the middle. So he's going to, he's going to have his work cut out in terms of uh, avoiding sacks this week, but you know, if there's somebody who's going to do it and that obviously plays into my handicap as well with the, with the rushing and be able to create plays uh, as well. But uh, I do think that it will help the fact that, you know, they know about this injury, they got all week to prepare and it's just a matter of, can you scheme your way kind of around that, uh, that issue? So uh, I do agree there. And, uh, I thought you brought up some some really good points uh, on both sides of the ball. I think the reason why um, this number is moving towards Baltimore is kind of what I said in the beginning is like pure, you know, the, the guys that just purely model this stuff out, all the numbers point to, to, to Baltimore. I mean, there's, and it's not even close to three and a half. If you, if you, like I said, if you, if you had a blind, uh, blind resume here. So my guess is some of that is, 
is just purely the number, you know, the kind of numbers-based guys. And then also the fact that the, the injury report is looking much better for, for Baltimore with Marlon Humphrey likely to play with uh, Mark Andrews. You know, Mark Andrews is not worth that much when he's, you know, kind of already hampered and, you know, Isaiah likely is playing well anyway, but it can only help. And then obviously the Tooney injury uh, for, for Kansas City uh, and negative for, for the Chiefs. So all of that kind of adds up to this kind of moving towards Baltimore more than it is towards uh, Kansas City. But, you know, like I said, I, I think it's going to be a really interesting – it's just an interesting dynamic because it's not um, – you know, fading Mahomes is very tough, but this is one of – this is maybe his toughest opponent that he's ever had. And the fact that, you know, on the other side of the ball – you know, not having well, Willie Gay, whether he plays or not, is big because this you could not they could not stop the run. And some of those high leverage downs you saw, you know, with Josh Allen, they were 50 percent on third down. That's because he could just kind of get whatever he wants whenever he wanted on the ground uh, when it was third and manageable. So you're obviously going to have the same issue here with Lamar Jackson, uh, you know, on those those situations. I mean, there's a case to be made that we could see just uh Baltimore just runs it down their throat all game, and there's just no stopping it. I mean, Kansas City hasn't stopped anybody on the ground all of the year. Uh, if you look at their losses to teams like Green Bay uh, and then earlier in the, in the year, Buffalo, like teams that can run the ball have have won against Kansas City. Those are teams that have been the most successful. Even the Raiders in that Christmas game, they, they ran the ball very well with Zemir White. So, you know, if you can kind of control the game on, on the ground, and get enough stops defensively, they can win. And so there's a, there's a case to be made that we could just see Baltimore's running it down their throat with their multiple you know wide, uh, running backs along with Lamar Jackson, uh, and it negates some of the stuff that the Mahomes can do on offense. But I, I have not stepped in, and, and I don't. It's tough, and that's why I think the under has has some merit too, just because I think both teams are going to want to run the ball a little bit more. To the point about the ground game possibly being the path forward, especially for the Baltimore offense here. One bet that I've already made, wanted to run by you, similar to your look at Mahomes rushing yards over, Lamar Jackson rushing yards over. And we're looking at a much different number here with Jackson. 64 and a half is the consensus as I'm seeing it right now. We touched on Willie Gay's status as a spy that could loom large here. I'll call out that bankroll management really in order for this bet specifically. I think I'm going to cap it at eight tenths of a unit. This time last week, Jackson's rushing yardage total. Different matchup against Houston, but not all that different. Lamar was only in the low 50s. This week, he opened in the high 50s, and that number has steamed since. A potential fly in the ointment with bets like this, especially with favored quarterbacks. I always keep in mind that kneel downs can count. They do count against a quarterback's rushing yardage. That may come into play with Lamar. But I think the movement that we've seen up to the current number of 64.5 is quite justifiable. Lamar ran for 100 yards last week. And as you touch on with Mahomes in high leverage games, I think there's more risk tolerance for quarterbacks to go ahead and take off. One more thing I like about this bet, some of the sharper books in this market that are known to take bets on props, Pinnacle and Caesars, heavily juiced to the over for Lamar at 64 and a half. And as with all props we'll discuss, I think it's worth considering that price can vary book to book. So there are some great line shopping opportunities. All that said, TA, any thought on Lamar Jackson over 64 and a half yards, which I tend to consider good up to a flat minus 115. Yeah, so I had Lamar's uh, rushing uh, prop over last week. Um that was well played. Uh, yeah, that was that was one that I eyeballed. It was 52 and a half that I got. So um, I, I obviously same same idea with with the you know increased leverage. If you look back at his history and I really broke down, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but in terms of percent of dropbacks where, you know, uh, where he had a rushing attempt, it skyrockets in the playoffs uh, versus the regular season. If you exclude his rookie year where he came in, or if you remember early in that season, he was just a situational guy running you know, wildcat. 
if you exclude that season and it's kind of every year since, since he's been a starter, uh, he's got multiple percentage points higher um, in terms of uh, runs to pass attempts uh, in the playoffs versus regular season. So to that point, it makes sense. I mean, he's got a couple, he's got like 300 yard games right now in his career uh, uh, rushing the ball over a hundred yards. So he clearly, I think one game against Buffalo, he had 30, like 34 yards. And that was only because he got hurt in that game. So uh, he definitely ratches it up uh, uh, on the ground. I'm a little, I mean, a, the, the price is just so, like you mentioned, so inflated 12 yards higher this week than versus last week. I mean, that's a major correction. So that would give me a little hesitation. And then also the way that uh, Spagnola plays defense against these guys, I think is going to be interesting because I think he's going to just blitz. He's going to do a lot of cover zero. He's going to try and confuse Lamar as much as he can. I mean, Lamar's 44th in the NFL and EPA uh, when it comes to cover zero. Now, again, he hasn't seen it as often, but still, uh, he, he's never been really good against those blitzes. Brian Flores a few years ago when he was with Miami on a Thursday night, he, he just sent the house uh, nonstop and, and Lamar couldn't beat it. That's not, you know, you, you have to get that by that first wave of those blitzers, right, to, to really break off big runs. And that's possible. If he can do that, he can, you know, almost clear this prop uh, with one run. But uh, I think in general, he's going to probably want to get the ball out of his hands quick, which might negate some of that that rushing uh, possibility. But that's just, again, if you look at some of his uh, versus blitzes, his scramble rate to, to, to uh, dropbacks versus the blitz is actually not as high as you might think. It's kind of middle of the pack of the NFL. I was surprised because I ran that. I actually ran that number this morning, so it wasn't as you know egregious as as you might you think. A guy like Lamar would run it. You know, anytime he gets blitzed heavily, he'll just kind of take off. But he's he's trying to he's trying to stay in the pocket as much as he can. And maybe that changes because again, because it's the playoffs. But um, but yeah, I'm kind of I'm kind of iffy on that. Just the price sensitivity being up so much higher than it was last week. It's um, it's it's hard to. It's hard to love a, a bet like that when it's a, when it's corrected so quickly, but you know the it's possible with Lamar. It's you know it doesn't take much, so uh, uh, it's not the end of the world. I don't think if you want to take that one. One more thing, I'll run by you when it comes to the Ravens ground game. I've got a, a few leans, and we'll be quick on these because they are just leans for me at this point. But I'll see if you can nudge me onto or off of anything. First up, a thought that I have, and this is really going to pend availability between now and kickoff, but if it's possible that we see anything posted for Dalvin Cook rushing yards or attempts, mm -hmm. I would love to go to the under there. I had this thought <laughs> watching the fourth quarter unfold last week. Cook is a big name, and he had an inflated stat line last week. As much as we could say that 23 yards on eight carries could possibly constitute an inflated stat line, he had one snap and no carries until early in the fourth quarter when Gus Edwards got hurt. 19 of Cook's 23 yards came on one run. He got fed once the game was largely in hand. And I think garbage time when we're looking at a spread like this, much less likely in the Ravens-Chiefs matchup this Sunday. Just looking at the eye test as well, it seems like the juice is pretty much gone for Cook. Might explain why he's bounced around now, I believe, on his third team in the last 12 months. So, TA, without going any further on that, do you have any point of view with your familiarity with prop markets on whether or not it's even feasible to possibly see any numbers that could be bettable for Cook to the under in the AFC title game. Yeah, I don't know if he'll be posted or not. Uh, when you get to this stage, though, they they post everything, so you might be able to find it. It may not be at all books, but you'll be you know you might be able to find it somewhere. Uh, it's definitely possible. I I would be careful. So here here's one thing I've noticed the this year, and you'll talk to anyone who bets props a lot. You know, this is a very news based uh, market, right? Like if you can get to the 
get to the prop before, you know, when, when you know, a reporter uh, comes out with a tweet or a comment about playing time or a coach is going to try to, you know, give this guy more carries or, or more touches, you know, right away, you, you know, you, you can hit that and the market will, will just fly. And we saw, we've seen time and time again, things like last week, I think it was Ian Rappaport who came out uh, that said, oh, Dalvin Cook's going to, you know, get a, a, you know, a bunch of, a bunch of touches today. And he ended up not playing, like you said, till the end of the game in garbage time. And I know people that were, you know, taking it took, I think they found some Cook uh, props last week, maybe at a rogue book, but they were really pissed off because he didn't see the field until the late uh, end of the game. And so, it, and it's been happening more and more where these, these, uh, these guys on Twitter, these reporters are coming out with this stuff and it's never true. So we have to be careful because I, I think less and less there's some disinformation that's being fed out there or just guys getting stuff wrong. And so uh, it's really cost some, some, I know, big prop betters a lot of money because of that. So I, I personally, you know, it's funny you mentioned Cook. I agree. I think he's, he's completely washed. He had that great first run, right, where he had a huge hole. Uh, he ran for like 20 yards. And then everybody on Twitter was saying, wow, all he had to do was go to the Ravens to break out. And then like the next, I think, seven carries, he had negative six yards. It was something ridiculous like that. It was like, all right, that's the guy I know. So, um, you know, no, I don't think he's back. And I personally think Justice Hill is the best running back amongst that group. He's got the most juice. Uh, and I know they love Gus Edwards in, in short yardage, but that's a guy I would potentially look um, if there is any sort of positive. If you see a guy like Rappaport or Schefter or any of those guys come out and they do mention the Dalvin Cook increase touches, I could see that happening. And then I can see Justice Hill's prop drop a little bit more. That Then I might want to jump in because, again, I think that at this point, I just don't trust these guys to be that accurate with this stuff. And, and I think that you could get a discounted price on a guy like Justice Hill because I think he's the best Running back amongst the group, he had a good game last week. I think he had, uh, he had 66 yards last week. He had 48 um, on only three carries uh, a couple of weeks ago against Miami. He had 10 rushes against San Francisco the prior week. So he does, you know, he had 13 touches last or 13 carries last week. So it's not like it's inconceivable, even if Cook does get some carries that he couldn't clear this. But I think uh, that's something I'm keeping an eye on kind of uh, uh, in line with instead of going opposite, instead of going under Cook, uh, maybe, you know, pivot and take, uh, take someone who might benefit, like a, a guy like Hill. That's that's an area that I would look at. And with a guy like Justice Hill, as you say that, one thought I had with, to your point, he has much more left in the tank than a guy like Cook at this stage of his career. Perhaps something like a longest rush. I'm seeing 10.5 juice to the over, 11.5 shaded to the under. I know he's only in line for probably seven rush attempts if we look at the seven and a half juice to the under in that market but there might be something there rush yards for hill lined in the low 30s seeing 33 and a half is a pretty consistent number so i hadn't put in any previous thought but i, I like that look too if nothing materializes for cook then i think hill could be a, a next best option in that ravens backfield to consider in the prop betting market and ta i hear you on being wary of possible head fakes from twitter news sources I'll just throw out there. I can't resist. I hope everybody who's on Twitter right now saying Jim Harbaugh to the Chargers is a foregone conclusion is not throwing us for a head fake as far as that's concerned. So maybe that news will get confirmed and finally break at some point soon. But when it comes to the news cycle, another Raven I'm eyeing in the prop market. Wonder if we'll see anything about this guy being designated specifically for red zone packages. Mark Andrews, receiving yards. I'm wondering if there might be any value to the under. It's a low number for him, 35 and a half. Similar to Dalvin Cook, we've got a big name here. And in the case of Andrews, first came back from a severe injury. I feel like there might be the element of a free roll in play in a couple ways here. 
First off, you kind of touched on it earlier. Andrews may well not be 100%, and that could really limit his usage to situations such as red zone and key downs. Also, if if Andrews is fully healthy, he still might be a little bit rusty after missing more than two months. From a pricing standpoint, week 11 against Cincinnati, the last game he started, he closed in the high 50s and low 60s. So again, this has been a considerable adjustment. I'm just not sure it's enough given what we can expect from him in a few days here. Any thoughts, TA, on Andrews lined over under 35 and a half receiving yards? Yeah, that's uh, it's tough. It's always difficult with guys coming back from injuries because, um, you know, you, you just don't know. You know, one play they can they can you know re-injure themselves. It is a lot of re-injury risk, and that's where you know there's some some guys on Twitter, uh, you know, that you can find that are kind of specialize in in some of these you know these these injuries uh, and have good information, at least more than what I've got. And so um, you know th- that's something I would you know keep an eye on. Like, is the type of injury that he has is it is there a high re-injury risk? In that case, I'd, I'd avoid it in terms of of, of taking an over. Uh, maybe grab the under. I, I mean, Isaiah likely is a good tight end, and it's not like they've really missed a beat without Andrews. I could see them kind of easing their way in with him, um, and you know, not necessarily force forcing him out there and, and running a bunch of routes in his first first game. Uh, but I will say something that's interesting. You know, the, the Kansas City defense I don't think gets enough credit, especially the secondary. I was on uh, Stephon Diggs is under yardage last week at sixty one and a half, pretty pretty big after I discovered. You know, dug in a little bit deeper on on the Kansas City defense, so they are just incredible shutting down wide receivers. A just targets and B yardage and yards per target, and they faced a really difficult schedule uh, of number one receivers. And so I can see uh, a situation where just the Ravens kind of avoid going after any of these receivers and just targeting, peppering the running backs and, and both tight ends. Um, you know, in terms of kind of different places to go with the ball. I mean, check out this. I, I have to, I have to point this out because I couldn't believe it last week when I when I ran the numbers. All of the, I mean, they all of the number one receivers that they faced, they all um, had less yardage against Kansas City than their season average, except for one that was Devontae Adams, who had seventy three yards in his first matchup against KC. I think his average is like sixty seven, so he barely got over. But I'm on Saint Rob. Uh, I'm on Ross Saint Brown, seventy one yards. Calvin Ridley, thirty two. DJ Moore, forty one. Uh, Garrett Wilson, sixty. Justin Jefferson, 28, Keenan Allen, 55, Tyreek Hill, 62, A.J. Brown, 8, uh, Devontae Adams in the second matchup versus KC at 4 yards, Jamar Chase, 41, Stephon Diggs at 24 the first time and then 21 last week. It's just incredible how they've shut down these receivers with that secondary. So I can see a world where Lamar just really attacks the tight end, uh, both tight ends. And again, maybe it's an opportunity to, to go over on Isaiah Likely if uh, we think that maybe instead of going under on Andrews, just, you know, he can get there anyway, right? Like he could get there even if Andrews does play a lot based on this style, you know, the style of defense that uh, uh, Kansas City plays, uh, shutting down receivers with multiple, you know, really locked down corners. So, you know, it could be a situation where not even dealing with, you know, the uncertainty with, with Andrews and just attacking Isaiah Likely um, in either sense, either uh, his numbers discounted too much because Andrews is playing and he could still get there, even if they, you know, play a lot of two tight end sets, et cetera. Or Andrews barely plays, and you got a great number on a guy like Likely in a situation where he's going to see a lot more looks than normal because of the wide receiver situation with with Baltimore and the matchup against the Chiefs. So uh, again, that I 
I personally like to pivot to instead of focusing on the guys that are hurt or the guys that we're not sure about playing time and just pivot to other guys who could be the beneficiary in that case, uh, kind of like the Justice Hill thing um, and maybe look at likely. When it comes to likely, I'm not seeing anything widely available yet for receptions or receiving yards. Maybe people are waiting further confirmation on Andrews, but definitely worth keeping an eye on in the next couple of days. TA, one more quick thing to run by you before we get to the NFC title game. Sticking with the AFC championship game for one more lean here. This one pending availability. I think we will see it at quite a few books closer to kickoff. I'm curious about the Chiefs to be the first team to call timeout. A lot of this circles back to what we discussed earlier in terms of game management. I feel like watching Reed over the years, it just seems like he's more cavalier with how he's used his timeouts. And maybe it's that Mahomes is so good that the Chiefs don't need to be as precious as a lot of other teams and coaches would be. Typically, this is posted closer to kickoff at a flat minus 115 for both teams. Any thought as to potential value on Kansas City to be the first team to burn a timeout on Sunday in Baltimore? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I've, I've never run the numbers. It, it does make sense because it does feel like Andy Reid does take timeouts unnecessarily. And you're on the road and you've got crowd noise and all those sorts of things. And, you know, I've never done a study in terms of, you know, uh, it could be a situation where the road team typically takes the timeout first uh, b- uh, before the home team just because of that, that you know, kind of crowd noise and, and those sorts of things. So, no, I, I mean, that's interesting. I, I don't really have a strong opinion either way because – I just haven't dug in enough, but that might be something you might want to take a look at is just in general. I don't know if you could find that stat anywhere. I'm not sure if that's available, but uh, it would just seem it would to me. And maybe you just look at playoff games, right? Because those are obviously the more hostile environments uh, and see kind of who uh, in this year's playoffs, um, if the road team, if it skews that way, because that could be an interesting uh, angle for sure. All right, maybe I'll have to see if I can list anybody with much greater skills than I when it comes to R or Python to see if they can dig anything up via play-by-play for Andy Reid's history, for John Harbaugh's history, and for road teams in the playoffs, to your point. So we'll table that one for now. TA, we've got another big matchup right after Kansas City and Baltimore wrap up the NFC Championship game. Detroit at San Francisco, 49ers currently the seven-point favorite at home, total of 51 The Lions fired on all cylinders to pull away from Tampa Bay in the fourth quarter last week. And the Niners, extremely fortunate to have survived and advanced coming out of that game against the Packers. How would you say, T.A., that you're approaching the NFC Championship game from a betting perspective? Yeah, so I've already bet the the Niners at six and a half. um, I think it was minus 118. There were some minus 110s out there, too. But um, uh, and obviously those are gone. So we're sitting at seven. I would still recommend uh, San Francisco at seven. I. I make this closer to nine, to be honest, uh, just again, based on it's not uh, my models more matchup based. So it's not ratings based. And I have a clear advantage here with or without Debo Samuel. It's, it doesn't really matter to me. Uh, and I'll go into that in a second. But uh, I just think that the Niners have such a huge advantage up and down the field. And, uh, you know, where Jared Goff and this offense love to really attack is, is over the middle of the field in between the, the hash marks. Um, he's always been like that. And, you know, he doesn't have the strongest arm in the world. And uh, the Ben Johnson, Ben Johnson offense really, you know, their goal is to, to isolate and attack in the middle of the field. And he's, he's done a great job with that. But the Niners are number one in the NFL in defending the middle of the field uh, in, from an EPA perspective. And obviously a lot of that is because their linebacking core is so good in coverage with Fred Warner uh, and Dre Greenlaw. And so, you know, that is you know going to be a huge issue for this offense, because if you can shut that down, and it's kind of a no-fly zone for Jared Goff, then what do they go to? I mean, I guess you can only go to the run game so often. 
um, you know, if you're trailing, especially. And so I think that that's a, that's a huge disadvantage for, for Detroit. You look this season, uh, they've played three teams, four times, Chicago twice, Baltimore and Atlanta, who ranked top 10 in EPA allowed over the middle of the field through the bottom, you know, the, the lowest rank, you know, the lowest uh, amount of EPA allowed. And Jared Goff had three of his worst games uh, in those four games uh, against Chicago. He was awful at home through a couple of interceptions over the middle of the field. Um, they were down, they were trailing big, came back uh, against a prevent defense of the Bears uh, and ended up winning that game. But they were pretty lucky to win that one. Then they go into Chicago. Goff looks terrible and they end up getting blown out uh, against Atlanta. He, they won 20 to six, but that was kind of a mediocre offensive performance. That was the worst uh, or the lowest scoring offensive output that they've had at home in the last, you know, essentially year and a half uh, scoring 20 points against Atlanta. So he was just kind of average in that game. Uh, and then in Baltimore, just, you know, they couldn't do anything. And so like, I've got enough evidence here. I know the type of quarterback he is. I know the type of system they run. I know who, who uh, Fred Warner and Dre Greenlaw are and, and what they, you know, what they do to shut teams down. I just think that's a huge advantage uh, in the favor of San Francisco. And then just in general, I mean, it's not like, Detroit really hasn't faced a ton of great defenses and pass defenses, you know, uh, on the season and, and pass rushes, quite honestly, like you look at some of the teams that they face very few pass rushes as good as, you know, the front four that we get here with San Francisco. So we know that Jared struggles under pressure. It's one of the worst quarterbacks from a PFF uh, grade standpoint, you know, clean versus, uh, um, versus pressure. And, you know, they don't have to send the blitz. They don't blitz very often. They can drop guys back again into the middle of the field, uh, and get pressure with just four. And you've got Frank Ragnall who's going to play. He's got two sprained knees. You've got uh, Jonah Jackson, their all-pro guard, who's who's going to miss this game. Like, that's a that's a bad, bad time to, to have the middle, you know, the interior of your, your offensive line against Javon Hargrave and Eric Armstrad uh, attacking you. So I think he's going to see pressure. I think he's going to, you know, not be able to um, push the ball down the field over the middle. And he's going to have to. I mean, Ben Johnson's really going to have to be creative to uh, to consistently move the ball down the field. I just don't think they have enough uh, on that side of the ball with that limitation to keep up with a, a Niners offense, which should be able to just shred this pass defense for the for the Lions. Bottom ten in every advanced metric when it comes to pass defense, they're dead last in explosive pass plays allowed. Uh, the thirtieth in, in average depth of target. So people are throwing over the top. We saw Baker Mayfield, you know, go over the top a couple of times with Mike Evans last week. You know, uh, they don't have the benefit of the home crowd here. Uh, to, I mean, realistically, this team should should be allowing more than 30 points a game in the last month. If you look at the last five weeks, they're, they've allowed almost seven yards per play, which is easily last in the NFL. Uh, they've been shredded by every quarterback that they face. We're talking about Nick Mullins twice and Baker Mayfield once, along with Dak Prescott and Matthew Stafford. The only reason that, you know, they survived that Rams game uh, and survive last week is when, when these teams are they're moving up and down the field and they get in the red zone and they either step on their own foot or, you know, they get unlucky with uh, a turnover or, you know, whatever play calling like the McVay, I don't know, just really changed up his play calling once he got inside the 20 yard line in that uh, wild card game. They kicked three field goals inside the 12 yard line. I mean, it was just just the way that they're getting away with um, playing defense here, you know, the, the proverbial uh, bend but don't break. So I don't think that's that's sustainable, especially on the road, especially against a great offense like like this Niners team um, who could do so many things. I, I just think it's a really bad matchup there. Uh, I, I think that um, in general, uh, the Niners, with or without Debo Samuel, is just fine. I mean, I, 
I'm I'm kind of ripping my hair out because all I'm seeing on Twitter and in the media about the the you know splits with Debo on the field and off the field uh, when he plays here are the stats and it's just like no this is not the case because people are not putting any of this stuff in context when you look at on off stats first of all they're very murky to begin with but you have to you know you have to understand the context and he missed a couple of games this year but Trent Williams missed the same games at the same time and he is arguably the best left tackle in the NFL. And their offensive line is pretty, pretty mediocre without him or, you know, outside of him. So when he's gone, the, the, you know, the line really collapses. And that's what we saw in those games that Debo just so happened to be out. I mean, when you look at the not to, you know, nerd out with the, the specific EPA numbers, but if you look at when um, uh, both guys have been off the field this year, uh, injured, the Niners go, you know, become like the 23rd ranked offense when it comes to EPA. When you when Trent Williams is playing, but Debo Samuel is off the field, they're still the second best offense in the NFL. Like that's how good they are. So they're still an elite offense, even without Debo Debo Samuel, as long as Trent Williams is playing. So that's all I really care about. And it's not like you're not facing a tough defense. You're facing a, a Lions defense that allows you know 400 yards to Nick Mullins. So uh, you don't necessarily have to have Debo Samuel in here to be an elite offense. And if you look at their you know their run defense, everyone says, and this will lead me to a prop. The run defense, everyone thinks is, you know, elite top five in you know, yards per carry allowed and EPA. But if you look at who they faced, they faced one running back who ranks in the top 15 in yards per carry. That was Kyron Williams in the wild card game. And he ran 13 times for 61 yards, 58% uh, success rate. He had a top five game for him this season against that defense. We saw Rashad White last week, who isn't very good from an efficiency standpoint, you know, he he uh, ran it nine times for 55 yards and broke off some big plays. So now you've got a Christian McCaffrey who's best in the NFL from a yards uh, yards per attempt perspective, who uh, I mean should have success here. I mean, I, I don't. I think some of the numbers that we're seeing from from Detroit defensively uh, on the ground is a little bit masked by who they haven't played. Right. So um, we have to put that in context as well. So all in all, and the thing with Brock Purdy, yeah, he's going to throw some passes that are turnover worthy. Like he does that every game. Uh, but I will say, and not to make excuses, like the guy has small hands. There's a reason why he was the last pick of the draft. He measured one of the smaller hands uh, at the combine uh, in his draft last year. Um, and when it rains and the weather isn't very good, just like with Jared Goff, he can't grip the ball very well. And it affects his play. We saw late in that game, he caught us. You saw the, the replay. Um, he had a shotgun snap and he was rubbing his hands against the, against his uh, his pants um, to get dry hands before he was throwing the football mid play. Like he he was clearly affected, and so uh, and you're going to get a perfect weather conditions for him. So I, I know that he didn't look great last week, but he still made the plays he had to. Um, you, you get to game plan if Debo Samuel does not play again. Like you talked about earlier with the offensive line issues, you know, mid game you get an injury, mid game you got to adjust. Last week they clearly had a, a lot of Debo Samuel in their game plan. So when he goes down early, they didn't 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 do a good job of adjusting mid game, and so now you'll know whether you know Debo's out for the you know going into it. So you can you can you know readjust your game plan um, for without him being in there. So all those things again, long winded uh, answer. I just think the Niners' role here. I'm going to look at some alts from a um, uh, from like a minus thirteen and a half, even minus nineteen and a half. Really go out, you know, kind of uh, outlier, kind of long tail outcomes here. I think there's a chance that San Francisco just completely destroys this team, um, you know, win something like, you know, 37 to, to 20, uh, 37 to 14. Like, why? I mean, 
this team went into to Baltimore, lost 38-6. Like, why, why is this that much different? I mean, San Francisco's actually, you know, call them equal with Baltimore. I mean, they were a, a big favorite at home a couple weeks ago. They're, they're right now, what, a, a one-point favorite in the Super Bowl. Now look ahead, why, you know, why is this matchup that much different than that one? Uh, I guess what is different to, to make people think that Detroit has a chance to really win this game? I just don't see it. Uh, and I just think that the you know the type of defense that the San Francisco could really put a stranglehold on Jared Goff in this offense. They get up early; it's oh, it's lights out. I mean, if if they can create some turnovers from Purdy early uh, and, and get a lead or stay stay close early, then then they got a real shot. But if San Francisco goes up, I don't think there's any shot that uh, Jared Goff and straight straight dropbacks without using play action, all those sorts of things that makes him effective. I don't think they have any shot at coming back. So. Um, so I, I love the Niners here, even at seven and that, you know, minus 110. And then I mentioned the prop. I would take McCaffrey. I know it's kind of a square play, but uh, his prop is uh, rushing yards. Is uh, I had 88 and a half a couple hours ago. I don't know what it is right now. I'm assuming it's right around that number. Looks like it's still um, there. Yeah. Okay. I like that uh, just because everyone's focusing on the passing game, which, you know, they're going to be able to throw the ball. But uh, I think if Debo Samuel doesn't play, it's it's even it's even better. But even if he does play, I, I doubt that they're going to want to give him a bunch of carries, right? Because he's, he's not going to be 100. percent They don't want him to take a ton of you know big hits on the ground. So you might get a couple extra looks from from McCaffrey uh, on the ground. And then as I mentioned, some of the uh, schedule the, the opponent adjusted numbers aren't as as good for for Detroit when you look at the you know running backs that they faced. And if my if I am correct, and this is a blowout a double digit lead and, you know, in the second half, you're going to see a lot of McCaffrey. Um, so even if he doesn't have the greatest efficiency early, you know, he should get enough touches late to, to get over that number. Uh, and last week he was lined at, uh, I think it was lined at 93, 93 and a half. It closed uh, against green Bay, which I, I had green Bay. So I thought that game would be much closer. So again, uh, you know, you're getting a little bit of a discount, at least in my opinion. So you, you got to predict, you kind of have to uh, play this game out a little bit in order to get some of these props to see some value. And, and I think, uh, you know, if San Francisco, you know, going to win big. And so I think that adds value to a, a lead running back like McCaffrey going over his yardage. All right. So if we were neutral when it came to the way the AFC title game might play out, I think there's a lot more conviction and frankly, some alignment <laughs> between the two of us in this NFC title game. I too felt good to lay six and a half at open. So now at seven, I was considering it more of a lean, but you might be nudging me over to say that's still bettable if we must say for a reduced amount. But at least whereas my opening bet on Kansas City has me feeling some buyer's remorse, this one at six and a half certainly feels good. And even at seven, if Samuel is ruled in, a flat seven might be awfully nice to have in the portfolio come kickoff on Sunday. I will try to look at this one in the spirit of seeing it from both sides. Some pros that I see for Detroit here, San Francisco being quite lucky to still be alive after what we saw from them against Green Bay last weekend. The Niners plus two in turnovers. And on the opening drive, Green Bay dropped what looked like a pick six. And you kind of touched on it. I think that for all Brock Purdy does well, from my limited perspective, it seems like he has quite the penchant for getting away with the quarterback equivalent of murder. So we'll see if he has to pay for any of those mistakes in this setting. But I don't know that the Lions will really force him into any of those situations. And with the conditions, that might not come into play as much either. When we look at the red zone, I know you touched on some good fortune for Detroit defensively. Same can be said for the Niners last week. Green Bay was two for five in the game at converting red zone drives into touchdowns. And the first half specifically, they were 0 for 3. Green Bay's first three drives all went inside the San Francisco 15. The Packers only had six points to show for that. 
So especially early on, Green Bay moved the ball much better than the scoreboard indicated. Looking at high leverage downs, San Francisco, 10 of 16 on third down last week. That's a 62.5% success rate. Unsustainably high when we look at the big picture for third down conversions in the NFL. And I also think the Niners getting to third down 16 times is quite the red flag for poor early down performance. And that tends to be more sticky. Again, I know the conditions were wonky. I know Samuel was out, but that stood out to me looking at the metrics from the Niners win over the Packers last week. And of course, Green Bay missing a 41-yard field goal that set up the Niners game-winning touchdown drive loomed awfully large in a game that was decided by three points. From a game management standpoint, similar to some of the topics we touched on in the AFC game, Kyle Shanahan gave us his best impression of Sean McVay getting ultra conservative at the end of the first half, settling for a 48-yard field goal attempt that seemed like a just outcome for that to have been blocked. And when we think about the Niners having a shaky kicker and some shaky game management, that might be their undoing at some point. I don't know if it's going to be this weekend, but that doesn't bode well for them in late and close situations. Of course, Dan Campbell not immune to poor game management at times. We saw multiple examples of that from him last week. But I think we can safely say that Detroit is better than San Francisco in this regard. And not to belabor your point on Debo Samuel, but assuming he goes, still probably going to be limited. So that could affect what the Niners can do offensively. There are, of course, plenty of pros for San Francisco here. Better team at home with a rest advantage. And while we detailed San Francisco's struggles last week, the Lions were not exactly dominant either. You touched on a few things that I won't need to repeat. But one thing that also stood out to me, the Lions lost the yards per play battle by about a full yard per play if we exclude kneel downs at the end of both halves. And they were able to overcome that by some high variance good fortune, thinking of seven for 15 on third and fourth downs and also going plus two in turnovers. TA, you touched on the Lions cluster injury situation along the offensive line. I think one more note that I'll add that was kind of amusing, and I'll say it's amusing because we can pretty much assume Ragnell is going to play every snap of this game. He's such a warrior. But on the practice report today, four injury designations, ankle, toe, knee, and back. Uh, this guy is, again, such a warrior, but it's just tough to see him being as effective as he would be if he were anywhere near 100% and with Jonah Jackson out at a guard spot next to him. This may loom large. Jared Goff can be quite effective when the path is paved for him. But as you touched on, he can be allergic to pressure. And if the offensive line doesn't hold up, there is a stout San Francisco defensive front looking to take advantage. The conditions we touched on could be quite pristine this time, much different than what Purdy struggled in last week against the Packers. So to circle back, T.A., on a point that you made about some blowout potential here and some San Francisco alt lines. I think you mentioned looking at 19 and a half. I'm seeing that being offered at plus 361. So a 20 point win for San Francisco would offer quite the nice payout. I'm also seeing a couple other numbers that might be appealing. San Francisco minus 13 and a half. So a 14 point victory would cash plus 189. And minus 22 is the highest alt line I'm seeing right now. I'm seeing that offered at plus 511. One thing to throw out there, you may want to wait to see what kind of odds boosts ESPN bet offers on game day if you have access to that book. But in all seriousness, TA, how do you evaluate these different types of options when we're looking at various semi-key numbers for San Francisco alt lines against the Lions? Yeah, I mean, it's it's tough. Uh, I think with a high total like this too, it increases the, the kind of long tails. But um, I did like the Obviously, the we, we know the key numbers once you start getting to, to, to 14 and 17 and, and 20. Uh, I like to get a half. I like to go half under those, um, pick one or two uh, on the long tail. I think I think people don't realize how often we get blowouts. Like 
the 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 Vegas line does not come into effect uh, as often as I think most people think. So, um, you know, I, I like having, um, you know, I'd like to get at least a two a plus two hundred when I go kind of out of the money here. Um, and you know, to me, like the the what was the one that was? Uh, I think it was nineteen uh, minus nineteen and a half. What would you get on that one? I think you, you, I'm uh, seeing plus three sixty one at a pretty yeah, prominent yeah. regulated book right now. Yeah, that would be one that I would definitely take a look at. If I'm getting plus 189 like that, um, that's probably not enough for me. Uh, I would need at least a two to one or higher uh, if I'm going to go out of the money. So um, and you just look at, you know, historically, you know, you didn't. I just want to go back real quick because um, I thought you made some really good points. And I think that's something that a lot of people bring up is, oh, this game was close last week. I think. I personally, one thing that I, you know, as I've gone from NFL handicapping, I think a lot of people put too much emphasis on the prior week. And that's why I don't do power rating shifts. Like I know some handicappers guys uh, say, oh, based on last week, I'm I'm increasing or decreasing the rating by so-and-so. Like that stuff is irrelevant to me because I, 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 that's where I think books have the advantage is where, you know, as humans, we're way too, um, condition from a, from a near-term bias perspective. And so I try, I don't even, in my numbers, I don't even update the prior week numbers uh, just to kind of give you a little insight. I use full season data and I use kind of recent data and I live, I don't even include my, my last week, um, what happened in the game last week, uh, with one of my models, because that skews to me, it skews how I look at things a little bit too much. Um, and it, it really does help find value unless there's a fundamental reason or fundamental change in the team. Uh, in that one week, to me, the, what happened the prior week is irrelevant. And remember that when, last time I was on with the Seattle-Detroit game, that was a perfect example. Like we, like in one week, I'm going to completely change how I think of, of Seattle uh, because uh, they look bad with, with those offensive line injuries. And so that led me to, to Seattle. So um, I don't really – it doesn't bother me that they had a close call last week. That's fine. It happens. We see it. You know, it's a limited sample. You saw, I think, Rob uh, Bazola mentioned it. Um, I talked about it a little bit. Uh, on Twitter where, you know, there hasn't been a, a ton of examples, but like the sample size is like six or seven where teams rest their starters week, uh, the final week of the year and then get the buy. And I think only one team had covered uh, out of those six or seven prior to last week with uh, with Baltimore. And, and so we get these a lot. And then I also looked and said, well, what happened? You know, the teams that did survive, what happened the next week? And a lot of the times they come back and not only win, they win in blowout fashion. Um, and so I think that's interesting. And in fact, Again, these are small samples, but just to, to, to kind of harbor the point, um, teams that are in the playoffs since 2000 that win but don't cover, like San Francisco, and then our home favorites the next week against a team that did win and cover, like Detroit, those teams are 8-2 and two against the spread um, the following week. Just to give you, and again, none of this is small sample, but just gives you an idea of like what happened last week shouldn't necessarily affect our thinking this week. So I personally don't, um, I'm not taking that into account just because these things happen and Green Bay's playing like a top 10 team. Uh, I think uh, we are even you know, top eight, you go into, you go into Dallas, you blow that team out. You got Jordan Love playing like a top five quarterback. You know, I'm okay uh, having a close call against a team like that. Uh, you know, I can live with that. So yeah, uh, that's kind of how I'm approaching it. I appreciate you bringing up this topic. And if you're okay to dance just a little bit when it comes to this notion, a lot of times what I try to do is account for the fact that when we're betting, it's not necessarily just us against the book is betters, but it's often us as individual betters against the rest of the market. So I try to look at things oftentimes, like if there's a glaring discrepancy in yards per play or early down success mm -hmm. rate, 
things that tend to be sticky, but on a mainstream level, fly under the radar, much more so than any highlight plays we see or final scores. And when we see things like discrepancies in third and fourth down performance, red zone success rate, turnovers, these are hugely impactful aspects of how any one game will play out, but they tend to be much less predictive moving forward. So when it comes to that notion, I guess on a week-to-week basis, I'm not looking at how a team did in yards per play or turnovers and making a massive adjustment one week to the next in terms of what I think should be done, but I'm trying to find areas that the market might be missing so that I can capitalize on perhaps some market overreactions or underreactions. So TA, what do you make of that dynamic where I know you try to look at things from a much more logical point of view, but to your point, not every actor in this market is thinking nearly as rationally. No, yeah, you're, you're, you're hitting the right point. It's like, are there hidden, again, it, let's say there was a close game, but like you said, there was uh, some red zone turnovers or some, you know, some unlucky, you know, high leverage spots that, uh, a team was converting way, way too often. You know, they're allowing uh, a high rate on, on third and fourth downs and those sorts of things. Uh, I think that's a great way to look at it. Uh, I was just thinking more, all right, this is a close game. So let's drop the rating on, you know, there, there are handicappers out there. I'm not going to name them. I think you might have, you may or may not have had one, one or two on who have talked, who, who have these type of power ratings and that's how they go about making numbers. And they'll, they'll adjust like all these teams every single week. And I'm like, why are you adjusting what you think of a team based on one game? I just never, I don't understand that way of thinking. Like I said, unless it's a multi-week issue that's been, it's been popping up for, for more than one week. Uh, and there's a fundamental change in the way a team is performing uh, to, to warrant that. Or if there's a major injury, all those sorts of things, I, I, you know, for sure. But just week to week, team didn't look good last week. So um, and absent all those underlying things that you're talking about, um, you know, th- there's no reason to to make big adjustments. So that, that's what I meant by that. Um, I, I just don't unless there's something that really they kind of go hand in hand with what you're saying. Right. Unless there's a ma- major fundamental issue, you can actually take advantage of the market the other way with, um, you know, being able to, t- to uncover some of those things that you're talking about. Yeah, and I, I really think this is an important topic. So I'll throw one more quick follow up your way and then move on to a, a few bets and leans to get your thoughts on for the NFC title game. But I would guess if I'm to put myself in the shoes of some of the handicappers who can remain nameless for the purposes of this conversation, the justification for making week to week adjustments might be that the NFL especially is such an inherently small sample size type of sport. So if we're only going to get 17 data points in a regular season. And if we're lucky, maybe a few more for good teams over the course of the postseason. If we're not making any adjustments, then we might be missing out on a relatively big chunk of the sample size that can tell us what could be representative of these teams relative to other sports. So any thought to that NTA in terms of how you try to look at things holistically? And I think you mentioned you also do consider recent performance, but what would your counter be to that justification for going ahead and making some week to week adjustments? Yeah, like I said, if there's a fundamental change, for sure. But again, I, you know, if it's early in the season, um, you know, I, I'm using my priors, my, th- you know, I do a lot of work, as you know, in the off season, um, yeah. for example, uh, with these previews. So I have a lot of opinions going in uh, based on what happened in the off season. And so if it's early in the season, then, you know, maybe you can you can use that a little bit more. But again, if it's multi-week, if we've if we've seen a pattern um, that kind of led up to the the prior week, then, then for sure I, I can I can understand that. That's where I would make an adjustment. But if it's just like okay, the Niners have been dominating teams, and then all of a sudden one week they just don't look as good, I'm gonna you know change my power rating on them. You know, it doesn't mm-hmm. that doesn't jive with me. That that's what I meant. 
uh, more so than uh, kind of what you're talking about is, you know, if we get a pattern, if it's trending that way, uh, then, you know, like the Eagles, for example, you know, I was all over Tampa and the wildcard game because the Eagles had gone like six, seven games in a row of looking terrible. And it, that was not going to be fixed. And the, the number and the betters that were taking Philly were just banking on priors that had nothing to do with what we're actually seeing on the field. Whereas, you know, I probably wouldn't have done that if it was, you know, one or two games after, you know, a really good uh, first half of the season performance for Philly, you know, so it, it just takes a little bit of time and maybe I'll be late on, on occasion on stuff like that, but I'd rather be late than early um, and really, you know, do something that's different than what my, you know, my person, you know, my thought is on these teams, um, you know, holistically. So it's not perfect. It's just, it's, you know, something that you kind of have to um, deal with on, on a week to week basis. And like, sometimes you're right. Sometimes you're wrong, but this is kind of how I've gone about it. Yeah. And, and I love the fact that this is messy and there is no perfectly clear right answer. So I like to think that this conversation might be the most valuable part of this entire episode. And as you were outlining a team like the Eagles on wildcard weekend and where you saw plenty of value fading them. I also think back to some examples like the Niners earlier this season when Purdy, I think had like a three interception game against Minnesota. That was also when I think Williams and Debo were both out. No need to downgrade them too heavily in that sense. I think there might've been a knee jerk overreaction there versus thinking back to last year, an example that comes to mind would be Cincinnati sometime early to mid season. I think they had an issue where if Joe Burrow was under center, it was pretty much a tell that this was going to be a running play. And if he's in the shotgun, they're passing and they mix things up. So there was a big shift kind of overnight with Cincinnati, but it's not because suddenly they converted their downs or had one huge outburst on the scoreboard. It's because there was that type of fundamental shift in how they operated and they made a dynamic cast of characters on offense, much less predictable. So that naturally showed a lot of promise for them moving forward relative to what their recent past may have suggested. Does that jive with your logic? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. That that's a fundamental change, right. In, in, uh, in the offense and the way they play. So um, absolutely. And then I think even this year with, with the Bengals, you know, with the Burrow injury, it, it, you know, it took time it took what, a, about a month or even longer. And then he's, he, you know, kind of broke out against the card. I mean, they remember they, they were a three point favorite in Arizona, if you can believe that looking back on it. Um, and, uh, with Joshua Dobbs and a lot of people were on Arizona, by the way, and they came out and, and, and Burrow looked great and they blew him out. Uh, and then I think there was one other game after that. And then everyone's like, okay, now at that point, you just knew, right? Because something fundamentally changed. He was healthy. He'd kind of proven what, you know, who he is. So that's where, you know, then you can totally make, you know, make that adjustment. Um, but, you know, until it happens, you have to, you know, I, I think for me, you just kind of have to wait and, and see it. Like I said, I like to see multi-weeks, um, you know, uh, or a specific fundamental change. All right. Well, I think that is about the best ground we can cover from a process-driven standpoint over the course of this conversation. TA, a few picks I'll look to rattle through pretty quickly here, just in case you have any opinions, thoughts that I've had digesting potentially actionable info with this Niners-Lions matchup. Three bets I'll, I'll start with. One, the first scoring method of the game between both teams to be a touchdown for the Lions. I'm seeing this at plus 230. I consider it good down to plus 200. And I'm going back to the well on this one after losing with it last week. The Lions scored first, but it was a field goal against Tampa Bay. A trend line is still strong. Four out of the six, last six games for Detroit, the first score of the game has been a Lions touchdown. And I think more than leaning on a trend, the logic that still applies. Dan Campbell being an aggressive head coach. Ben Johnson being creative with his game plans. 
from a matchup standpoint, I think there's also a bit of a free roll that Purdy could be shaky early on once again if his confidence was rattled last week. And from a pricing standpoint, I think this is a pretty standard line given the full game point spread, not necessarily accounting for some of the unique factors given these two teams in this setting. I'm seeing this offshore right now. I think it's the type of prop that tends to become more widely available closer to kickoff. CA, any thoughts on the first scoring method to be a Lions touchdown anywhere at plus 200 or better? Man, well, I mean, based on my handicap, <laughs> I wouldn't think so. Mm -hmm. But uh, I mean, in terms of like, I would like, I would bet that Dan Campbell's going to take the ball and I would bet that Kyle Shanahan will, um, will defer. Uh, Shanahan always defers. I'm not sure about Cam about Dan Campbell, but I would assume he wants to take the lead, right? Like he he knows he he wants his offense on the field. So I think in from that perspective, you get you're getting a little bit of advantage. But you know, so so and, and you know, I get it from that uh, perspective. Like I said, I just think they're going to struggle um, scoring here. Um, you know, down the field. And maybe, by the way, maybe if they do kick, you might see a Dan Campbell on side early. Um, something in that regard, even if they make a, you know, let's say they go down, they, they kick a field goal start. You might see an onside kick. I could see, you know, Dan Campbell doing stuff like that. So again, that, that helps your case. I just, I guess like I, I just have a hard time believing that Detroit is going to, um, you know, just kind of march down the field against this defense very often. So um, that that's the only pushback I'd have. Fair enough. And another bet that could be related to what you just said there. I'm on the lines under one and a half field goals. I'm seeing that at minus 135 and consider it good up to minus 145. And a bit of this does depend on the game state. If it is a blowout, especially in the second half, field goals may not do the Lions a whole lot of good. And with the handicap here, I'll give a hat tip to Ron Marmolevsky once again on this show. He was my guest on Wildcard Weekend, and he kind of brought this angle to my attention. I think of the late, great David Malinsky. He would have a term, a meal ticket for a bet like this that has been consistently cashing and the price doesn't seem to have fully caught up yet. Similar to the handicap last week with the same prop, the Lions attempted the fewest field goals during the regular season by a wide margin. And if we include the playoffs, 23 attempts in 19 games this year for Detroit. Dan Campbell's aggression, a factor with this bet as well. I can foresee a situation where there's a fourth and three on the opponent's 35-yard line. Kyle Shanahan, despite having a shaky kicker, may well attempt that field goal. Campbell, in all likelihood, would be going for it in that type of situation. And there is some correlation here with that bet on the first score of the game to be a Lions touchdown. Bankroll management in order so that we can stay resilient with the portfolio in case the first score of the game happens to be a Lions field goal. This is another bet I'm seeing offshore that tends to become more widely available closer to kickoff. TA, any thought behind Detroit under one and a half field goals, laying some VIG minus 135? I like that a lot. I think it makes a lot of sense. Um, Bagley's not a great kicker in general. And uh, Candlestick, oh, what do we call it? Candlestick, whatever. I forgot what the, the, Levi's, the, the term yeah. the Levi Stadium uh, it probably is. I don't think it's the greatest kicker's um, you know, uh, uh, stadium. Uh, but in general, yeah, like Dan Campbell, especially as an underdog, I was just kind of quickly, as you, as you mentioned that, uh, trying to find games where they were underdogs this year and how often they kicked. I mean, at Kansas City in the opener, uh, did not kick a field goal. Again, I don't know how many opportunities they have, so that that clearly matters here. Uh, but did not kick a field goal in that one. At Baltimore, you know, they only scored, uh, they scored one touchdown, so obviously no field goals there. Um, at Dallas, they did make two field goals, uh, but again, that was a much closer game than it really should have been. So in general, it feels like as an underdog, if the game goes the way that we've been talking about, 
then that absolutely, I think, is a great, great ticket to have. There's very few, uh, very few situations, I think, where he'd kick in this game. It would have to be like, because I think there's also a point where it, it, Bagley's leg's not great, especially outdoors. So once you get to like 50 yards plus, he may just go for it no matter what, no matter if it's fourth and seven, he may go for it like at the 35, for example. Um, whereas indoors, he might kick it. So there's very few examples where he's really going to kick a field goal here. Um, so I, I do think that's a really, that's a really good one. I, I, I back you on that one for sure. All right. I will take that endorsement and run with it. And there's something you touched on that I think weaves into the third and final bet that I have placed for this game that I have ready for the purposes of this show. We can call it the props and hop special shortest touchdown under one and a half yards at minus 150, a smidge of wiggle room. I consider this good to minus 155 and regular listeners would know the drill by now. A high total for this game bodes well for the prospects of lots of points, which in turn bodes well for the prospects of lots of touchdowns. And that in turn bodes well for the odds of at least one one yard touchdown. Thinking about these two teams specifically, San Francisco McCaffrey's got a nose for the end zone. We've seen that for a long time now. The Niners also have Purdy as a mobile quarterback and an outstanding play caller. For the Lions, I think they're really the ideal team for this type of bet. Dan Campbell's aggression, once again, may come into play with this type of prop. I feel like he, of all coaches, may have a penchant for turning stall drives into fourth down conversions and eventually goal-to-go situations. The Lions also have an offensive line that's strong, if not elite, due to the injuries that we've touched on. And Ben Johnson, again, an outstanding play caller. TA, any interest on your end in the shortest touchdown in this game, under one and a half yards at minus 150? Yeah, I've never priced it out, so I would. I, it's hard for me to to, to um, endorse it or not. Just kind of thinking logically, I think you, you make a lot of sense there. I, I wish you know, and with a bet like this, I'd want to have one quarterback who does quarterback sneaks. I don't think either one really does, mm-hmm. right? So that's that's the only knock. Uh, I don't think either one's like a, a quarterback sneak guy. So that that would definitely um, kind of hurt your value a little bit. Uh, but in general, again, higher scoring game should get a lot of opportunities here. Uh, so, you know, again, I've never priced any of this, something like this out. So it feels like you've been on this a lot, right? So you probably have a better feel for how often it occurs, but, um, I think your, your thinking is, is logical. So, um, you know, and sometimes it just comes down to luck with a lot of these, right? Like you need, you get a pass mm-hmm. interference in the end zone. Uh, that's and a big part of there. it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I don't know, are there, um, I mean, have you ever looked into, I guess, and now we're getting the like you know, lunacy after the last couple of days, but uh, have you ever looked at any like the referees and kind of how often certain referees call defensive PI or anything like that? You know, that could always add a, a little bit of value if, if it's a referee who's, who's got a tendency to call that. I don't know. Uh, those are things that I would look at in, in a specific situation, but I think you're looking at it logically. Yeah, all I can say is if somebody's to look into the officiating right now, I'm afraid all they might find is perhaps conspiracy theories about officiating benefiting Kansas City and Baltimore. So this might not be the best time to look into it, but PI in the end zone, definitely a bit of a potential get out of jail free card with this type of prop. NCA, you mentioned that neither quarterback is really prominent when it comes to the sneak and short yardage situations. So one player who might be helpful near the goal line for Detroit, but who I'm leaning toward fading for the game as a whole, David Montgomery rush yards under 43 and a half. The lions have exercised a lot of load management with Jameer Gibbs this season. Gibbs of course being the more dynamic athlete and as a rookie, he's never played this many games. So it feels like Detroit has really been limiting Gibbs's touches for high leverage moments, just like this game. 
more volume for Gibbs would pretty much by definition translate to less volume for Montgomery and those Lions offensive line injuries we've touched on along the interior. So that could have an outsized impact on their ground game. And a bit of a free roll here, like the game state we've touched on, San Francisco being the significant favorite, kind of building on that alt-line discussion we've had. If the Niners have a big lead late, Detroit might basically be forced into passing well before they would prefer to do so. And then Lamar Jackson, we touched on his rushing yards prop. One go there was Pinnacle and Caesars leaning in our favor. That applies here as well. Anything TA to nudge me onto or off of a look at Montgomery under 43 and a half rushing yards. That's funny you mentioned that. I was I was looking at that as well. Um, one offshoot of that, I do think that this is a, a Gibbs game. Uh, we saw an increase, uh, you know, in the passing game la in last week. Actually, the last two games, I think he's at four for 40 plus. Uh, I actually had, I, I like Gibbs over 22 and a half receiving yards, and you can actually get some uh, alts, I think, in the 40s at pretty good money, um, you know, uh, uh, that I think is, is pretty attractive. And to that point, again, um, I like when I look at some of these, I'll say one thing I learned last year, I got screwed in the uh, conference weekend because I had a lot of, um, you know, uh, you know, a lot of uh, kind of combined. I was I was using I had the, the Chiefs at plus two and a half. You remember that open because of the, the Mahomes injury. And then I had um, San Francisco. So I, te I thought that was one of the best teaser legs, uh, both teaser legs up to eight and a half. And I combined that. I actually had, I thought San Francisco was going to win outright. So I had the Niners and I had a bunch of props tied to San Francisco too. So when obviously the Kansas city leg hit, um, you know, Purdy's injury, just, I lost like six bets because not only did the teaser lose the straight up bet lost. And then all the props like George Kittle and others tied to that loss. So um, I try to, I, now I'm approaching this a little bit uh, differently. Whereas I, I want props with players where I get multiple bites at the apple. If I'm going to take it over. And what I mean by that is if it's a neutral, you know, obviously I have a, uh, a thinking about how this game's going to go, but even if that doesn't occur, can I still get there? Like I want to be able to have multiple bites at the apple. I don't want it to be fully, um, you know, dependent on a blowout, for example. And so that McCaffrey one, I think has that. And Jameer Gibbs, I think has that um, from a receiving yards perspective. So here's how I'm looking at it. Again, I agree. I think they, they didn't draft them in the first round. Um, and play him kind of a, a partial, you know, partially to not use him uh, in the biggest game of the year. So I think he's going to get a lot more snaps than normal. He's obviously the pass game uh, running back here. If it's a blowout situation, he's going to get he's going to get all those looks. And I went back and looked. Um, so the Lions have thrown the ball. 18% um, of their pass attempts have come when trailing by double digits, which is like 10th lowest in the NFL because they haven't been trailing by a lot all year. Uh, but he saw 21 of his 71 targets this year uh, in those situations. So uh, almost a third of his targets have come in less than 20% of the plays, uh, if you could believe that. So he is like, if they're getting blown out or if they're down, I mean, blow out double digits, he's going to, he's going to get the, he's going to be the beneficiary of that. And especially against a defense that plays back that rushes four, I think they can get a lot of dump off. So I do like it from that perspective, if they're trailing, he should easily get those uh, hit those number. Numbers. If it's a neutral game state, uh, this is still a, a Niners defense that allows a, a you know fairly high rate of targets to running backs. I think 19th in the NFL, which isn't like anything substantial. But when you consider who they've played um, and their opponents rank 32nd, dead last in target rate to running backs, they don't throw to running backs in general compared to the rest of the league. 
uh, allowing a, a you know 19th uh, in target rate is a pretty high number. So uh, kind of adjusted for opponent, you're probably looking at you know bottom 10 in that regard. So they're good at tackling. So you know, even though they complete those passes, like they get tackled a lot. So that's why I like the receptions um, as well as as the you know, kind of break it up in half. But um, you know, and then they've they've allowed to, to the the running backs who have seen the highest target rates against them. Rashad White had six receptions for 28 yards. Jalen Warren's had Jalen Warren had five for 12, and uh, Tony Pollard had four for 35. Uh, and those are the only uh, other running backs who are in the top 10 in terms of uh, targets amongst running backs. Where Gibbs is eighth, so he's in that list. So you know, they all got you know at least four receptions. I can see a similar situation, even in a non blowout. Uh, I think he's going to get a lot more usage. I think, as I mentioned before, golf should get pressured a lot. He's going to want to dump it down. So I think he's a beneficiary there. So, um, but in line, I do agree uh, with the Montgomery under, I just think a Gibbs in general is going to get more usage and B if it is a, uh, if they're trailing, he's going to get less and less work because he's not necessarily the running back. Uh, that is used. He's not running a ton of routes um, when trailing. So uh, I think you get kind of both situations. I think are good uh, in that regard. All right. Well, I think that's about as deep as we can go on two games for an NFL slate, a quick rapid fire rundown of our conference championship portfolio for the AFC title game TA. I've got you down on Patrick Mahomes over 26 and a half rushing yards as the consensus number, but shop around 25 and a half still out there for the astute better. And for me, uh, I don't know if you can see on YouTube and Spotify, I'll have a video episode. I've got my Bruce Springsteen shirt on today. Born to Run being one of his biggest hits. Let's dedicate that song to both quarterbacks here. TA, you've sold me on that Mahomes over. I'm also on Lamar Jackson over 64 and a half rushing yards. And then in the NFC title game, TA on San Francisco minus seven. And Christian McCaffrey over 88 and a half rushing yards. I've got Detroit touchdown to be the first scoring method of the game at plus 230 Detroit under one and a half field goals laying minus 135 shortest touchdown in the game under one and a half yards at minus 150 and then TA I think your analysis there sold me on David Montgomery under 43 and a half rushing yards so with that I think a lot of picks here a ton of process usually I follow the picks with process but I think we covered it and then some especially talking week to week adjustments as far as the hops go, let's boot that segment as well this week. TA, you gave us the long drink in week two, and maybe that's still a good <laughs> companion for a long day of hopefully some good football on Sunday. Final question for you here this week. I want to weave in the Malinsky minute because when I think of a time of year like this with the betting cycle, preparation really comes to the forefront. And I have a flashback to visiting Dave in Vegas during the 2017 NFL season. And this was in the fall, so college football was still happening as well. We went out for lunch on a Friday. And Dave was very generous with his time and, of course, picking up the tab, as he always insisted on doing. But Saturday night that weekend, there was no chance I was going to see Dave. He referred to this as sacred time for himself to grade the early college football games of the day, watch the late games, and make sure that he was ready to pounce on any advantageous openers immediately when lines became available on Sunday for the following week's late. And to tie that in with this conversation... The opening line for the Super Bowl, probably going to be up within minutes of the end of the NFC title game on Sunday, if not before that 49ers-Lions game even wraps up. And props seemingly get posted earlier every year. These markets can move in the blink of an eye. So TA, I'd love it if you could briefly perhaps describe your process to make sure that you've prepared yourself to pounce on any potentially advantageous Super Bowl opening lines before they go away. Yeah, I mean, I'll have my work done for this week. I'm still... Um 
you know, monitoring all the props, like I said, and, and debating whether I'm going to go ahead and uh, uh, take, maybe take that under in the Ravens game. I haven't decided yet, but um, I'll probably have all that done by, by Saturday morning. And then I'll, I'll I have my model. So I just, um, I'll, you know, and I don't like, again, I don't really factor in what happens this week too much from a, from a data standpoint uh, to, to my numbers. So I'll have my numbers for any potential matchups uh, in the Super Bowl, and then I'll have like right away. I'll, I'll see all my target rates and all that stuff for all the mm-hmm. different uh, props and, and things like that. Um, you know, I kind of simulate each game uh, based on my model, so I'll have that all kind of in hand on Saturday and early Sunday. So when, like you said, when uh, uh, the, the the lines are first posted, or even Monday morning uh, with the props, then I can go ahead and fire. I, I don't like to go too crazy right away. Uh, I like to kind of I want to give as much you know, time as possible to do my homework. Uh, you know, those props are going to be up for mm-hmm. two weeks. Um, and if I like any overs, I'll hit those probably in the first couple of days. Uh, if I have any unders I like, I'll just sit and wait. And that, that was the other thing I was going to say about this week. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, you still got a couple of days. If you like that Montgomery under, you might want to just wait. Uh, I, I, all the props I gave out were all overs because those are the ones that, uh, you know, overs get hit early uh, and they get inflated too much to the point where then you can go back and take your unders, you know, uh, game day. So that's, that's essentially what I'm doing. So that's why, you know, looking at the overs first, but I do the same thing with the Super Bowl for the most part, unless there's a, a crazy, unless there's a major narrative that would drive something under, um, I would look to kind of anything that I like over uh, to hit early. So th- that's essentially what I'm going to do on, on Saturday afternoon and Sunday morning uh, in advance of the, you know, the Super Bowl lines coming out, but I have a general idea. I mean, we already know kind of what the lines will look like absent any injuries. We already know kind of who's going to be favored and by how much. So, and I kind of have an idea of, you know, which, which side I'd be on it if it's something that I have interest. So, um, you know, that, I'll do that this weekend. I think that leaves us as prepared as possible, not only for the two games on tap for Sunday, but also for Super Bowl openers that may flash early before we even get to the beginning of next week. So as we wrap up this week's episode, a quick ask to the audience, those of you with us on YouTube and Twitter, if you could like this video, that would be greatly appreciated. And to those of you catching this conversation in podcast form, would also appreciate it if you could take five seconds to leave a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Friendly reminder, you can follow TA on Twitter at CleveTA. You can also find his work at cleveanalytics.com and on the Forward Progress YouTube channel. TA, these conversations are always such a blast. Thank you so much for your time and insight this week. Thanks, Matt. I appreciate it. And to those of you watching and listening, thank you for your time as well. Enjoy Conference Championship Sunday in the NFL.